Amen. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to uh, Acts chapter 1. You know, again, we started the book of Acts two weeks ago. We looked at the first uh, 12 verses. I was really blessed last week with uh, Joseph Ryan being here. Uh, I hope you guys were too. But before we get going into our study today, you know what I like to do when we start a new book is always kind of uh, give a brief outline of the book. And, and you know, um, in order to get the most out of our study, I think that that's just really important to understand a few things. Who wrote the book? You know, when was it written? Why was it written? And, and you know, what's the theme? And then that overall brief outline of the book. I, uh, reason I think it's important is just because it gives us a context to understand, you know, why the what the writer's trying to convey to us, what he's trying to share with us. So, as you know, uh, Luke, he's the author of the book of Acts. You know, it's the second volume of his two-volume set. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, and uh, you know, we noted in our in our last study that it was written to a man named Theophilus. When Luke wrote the book of Acts is not exactly known. It's not well known. There are, there are historical events uh, that's not mentioned in the book uh, that help us to give, help to give us, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, certain historical events that are not mentioned in the book of Acts that helps to give us an idea, an approximate time of when the book was written. For instance, there's no mention of the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And, and that would seem, you know, appropriate, you know, because one of the themes of the book of Acts is the gospel going out to the Gentiles in light of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, right? And the destruction of Jerusalem, it was a fulfillment of what Jesus said, you know, in Luke 19 during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know, you remember that people cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the, in the highest. And, um, no, not wrong one, uh, but good job. Good job. Thank you for being ready you know, anyway, uh, you remember they cried us out and the Pharisees said to Jesus, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And uh, they said this because they knew what they were saying was a fulfillment of Psalm 118 in regards to the Messiah. And Jesus' response to them, Luke 19.40, you know, he said, I tell you that these should... If these should be silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So if the book of Acts was written after 70 AD, you would think Luke would have included the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. So the book of Acts was probably written be, before 66, 68 AD because it ends with Paul uh, going to Rome, uh, awaiting trial. And it's widely believed that the Apostle Paul uh, died sometime between 66 and 68 AD. You know, most conservative scholars uh, hold to a date of authorship of sometime around 60, 62 AD. And as I mentioned last time we were together, some Bibles have this uh, year your Bible may have the title of this book. Mine has it this way, The Acts of the Apostles. And as I said last time, you know, this is an unfortunate and uh, inaccurate title because uh, Luke says in verse 1, the former account, right? Luke says in verse 1, the former account, referring to the gospel of Luke, you know, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now, that was the gospel of Luke. That's what he was referring to. But here in the book of Acts, right, the, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus both does and teaches through his spiritual body, the church. 
So I think the more accurate title to this book would be, you know, the acts of the Holy Spirit through his apostles. But even that title falls a little bit short because the book only focuses on the apostle Peter, chapters 1 through 12. And then uh, it switches gears and looks at the uh, apostle Paul, chapters 13 through uh, 28. But one of the great revelations, I mean, if we miss this, we're going to miss out on so much. The great revelation, one of the great revelations of this book is that God uses ordinary people like each of us, right, to do extraordinary things. I mean, God uses people like Peter. He was just a fisherman. You know, uh, Philip, he was a waiter. Paul, he was a religious nutcase right? Simon, a tanner, Barnabas, you know, a misguided Levite, but, you know, an all-around good guy. Everybody loved him. Um, Mark, a young man that quit in the face of, uh, you know, difficulty. Luke, the beloved physician. God uses ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things to turn the world upside down or, you know, probably more accurately to turn the world right side up. And the takeaway is that the Lord is looking for ordinary people like us. You know what? Who are willing to be obedient, who are willing to look to him and trust in him, you know, so that he can do the extraordinary, which is his heart is to just win souls for the kingdom, right? So, um, look at how the Lord uses these men. Acts chapter 5, 28. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. How would you like to be accused of filling Truckee with the doctrine of Jesus Christ? I mean, wouldn't that be great? You know what? You guys, man, you guys filling the town of Truckee with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Acts 16, 20 says, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And again, it's a reference to the spread of the gospel in that area. Acts 17, 6 says, but when they, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason some, and some brethren to the rulers of the cities, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You know what? How would you like people to say that about you? All she ever does, all he ever does is just talk about Jesus. You know, how would you like to be so closely related to Jesus that people would say you're turning the world upside down. Or, or, or again, you know, in reality, right side up. The reason the book of Acts now is written is because it gives us a link. It provides us a link be between the four Gospels and the New Testament epistles. I mean, just imagine you're, you being maybe a new believer and you're reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you turn the page and you come to the book of Romans. And you'd think to yourself, you'd be completely in the dark. You'd think to yourself, well, how did the gospel get to Rome? What happened? So th that's the link there that's provided for us in the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles for us the first 30 years of church history. It covers the birth of the church in Jerusalem, the expansion of the church in Judea and Samaria, the gospel then going out to the Gentiles, and then followed by Paul's missionary journeys to the end of the world. You know, again, it's just a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. First Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. Without the book of Acts, we'd be left to wonder how the gospel spread across the region and then on into Europe. So it gives us the understanding also of how the epistles fit into that expansion. Now, Acts is written to give us the essentials, and we can't miss this. It's given us the essentials of Christian ministry. You know, it's the blueprint for Christian ministry, what the church is supposed to do. 
You know, so many people come to me over the years. They've come to me and they ask questions like, you know, how do you explain? How do you defend the Crusades? You know, how do you account for the dark times in the church history? You know, the terrible, the terrible events which occurred in the history of the church. And there are dark events that have occurred in the history of the church, right? Well, what we need to understand is that the church history that, is, that we have, it's a picture, actually, of just how wretched the church can be if we don't adhere to, if we abandon the New Testament principles that are found in the book of Acts, right? You know, it's, it's the New Testament principles that are found in the book of Acts, the Calvary Chapel Truckee, uh, and the Calvary Chapel movement as a whole has been built on. You know, we're seeking as a church to adhere to, to follow, to follow those New Testament principles found here in the book of Acts. And the first one that we, we see is Acts 2.42. And it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines. That's the teaching of the word of God. You know, and fellowship, that's hanging out together, getting together for coffee. You know, getting to know those people that come into the fellowship that, you know, uh, we don't know very well. Loving on one another in the name of the Lord. You know, after church, during the week. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of the bread. That's eating together, having people into your house, sharing meals with each other. You know, um, you know, and I and I know Calvary Chapel Truckee. All you guys are good friends. You guys have been around for a long, long time. But as new people come in, you know, uh, it, we're to open our our homes to them. We're to have them into our homes. To have have them around our our tables for lunch, for dinner, just hanging out with them, getting to know them, encouraging them. And they continue steadfastly in prayers. You know, our vision of church is to pray together, right? Wait on the Lord together. Um, the way we see it modeled for us in the book of Acts, we need to continue steadfastly in these things. And the book of Acts reveals to us the essentials which are to be maintained if we're to see the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in our church and the work of the ministry. A.W. Tozer said, if the Holy Spirit was taken, um, you know, away from the first century church, 90% of the things that went on would come to a grinding halt. But today, he said, if the Holy Spirit was taken away from the 20th century church, 90% of the things would just continue on as normal, you know. Apart from the leading and working of the Holy Spirit in our church, Everything that we do is just chaff. You know what? It's empty. It's filthy rags. It's worthless. You know, I'll tell you the truth, uh, and I, and I'm going to just share my heart today and as we go through this book. You know, the, the truth of the matter is I don't want to be, you know, a church that's directed by flow charts. You know, I don't want to ever be a polished pastor. You know, uh, I'm not looking to be a great or, or what is it? A speaker. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, yeah, you don't got to worry about that gear. <laughs> I don't want to be a wordsmith. I don't want to be a wordsmith. You know, I don't want to, you know, be able or qualified in and of myself because you know what I, I think is very true. It's so dangerous. Our qualifications are our disqualifications. Our strengths very often become our greater weaknesses. My aim as a believer, my goal as a pastor is to be utterly dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit as exampled by the, the lives of ordinary men and women here in the book of Acts. So the outline of the book of Acts, if you're taking notes, the outline of the book of Acts, very simple. There's multiple outlines. You can divide it. Uh, the way I, I already stated, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You know, the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 1, 1 through 8, 4. Uh, the spread of the gospel into Judea and Samaria. Acts 8, 5 through 12, 25. Then to the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 13 through 28. 
You can also uh, divide the book based on its focus on the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the circumcision, Acts 1 through Acts 12, and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Did I say Paul the first time? The Apostle Peter to the circumcision, and then the Apostle Paul to the uncircumcised, Acts 13 through 28. But what I find the most interesting division of the book is found within the book. It's these uh, seven progress reports that Luke gives uh, throughout the book. So seven, the first one is Acts 2.47. It says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, or sorry, Acts 6.7. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 9.31. Then the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 16, 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith, in the faith, and increased in number daily. Acts 19, 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And then the last one that he gives is Acts 28. 30 through 31. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which uh, concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. You know, um, I actually believe with all my heart, I actually believe that this is what God wants to do in our, in our little church, in our little body. I think that's what he's longing to do in our midst. And I'd encourage you guys to be praying and to ask God to do it, to pour out his spirit on us, to add to us uh, those that are being saved, to multiply us, you know, not for our glory, never for our glory, but strictly for his glory. You know, it's my prayer that uh, we would be edified in him, built up in him, and that each one of us would walk, you know, through our days uh, you know, in the fear and reverence of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that the word of the Lord would grow and it would multiply and that we would grow in the knowledge of his word. You know, that God would be uh, strengthening us in faith daily and that God's word would prevail in our hearts and minds, uh, in, in the hearts and minds of many around us. You know, that the kingdom, you know, uh, you know, the things that concern Jesus Christ, our Lord, would always and only be preached and taught among those who are, you know, coming to faith in him. I mean, this is my hope for our church. This is, this is my prayer. This is, you know, our collective vision as a church uh, that the Lord would establish us and fill us, you know, and glorify his name through us. That's, that's what we want to see God do. So let's get into the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, we made mention uh, of this the, first time, the last time we were together, uh, that through the gospel of Luke, it seems that Theophanus, uh, Theophilus became uh, a believer. He was converted to cre Christianity by the time Luke writes uh, the book of Acts. And the application we made uh, was that we must never underestimate how powerful God's word is when we share it. And that our testimony, you know, our personal account of how we met Jesus and what Jesus done in, has done in our life you know, we should never underestimate that. Our testimonies are a powerful tool when we share Christ with other people. And then verse 3 says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of other things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact, period, right? He was seen alive after his resurrection by over 500 people at once. And we're told here that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, by many undeniable, incontrovertible, and unarguable proofs. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, uh, you've heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the last time we were together, we made mention, we looked at the importance of waiting on the Holy Spirit. You know, for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us for the work of the ministry. And we, we also saw how the Holy Spirit was to be received. He's to be received by faith in the very same way we receive Christ as our Savior. By faith, right? And even though the disciples had already received the Spirit. Remember, Jesus breathed on them, John chapter 20, 22. Jesus instructs them to wait for the Spirit to come upon them. And I think the lesson, you know, that we're to learn here is it's not as, you know, what's important is not um, us having the Holy Spirit. It's not as, as important as the Holy Spirit having us. You know, and that's the question. Does the Holy Spirit have you today? Are you His? Is your life dominated by the Holy Spirit? And in verse 6, we continue to read, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Jesus declares here to his followers that some things are in God's hands and we're not to concern ourselves with those things. But we are to be faithful stewards of the things that God has revealed to us. And then in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, I love this verse. Because when the Spirit comes upon us as believers, right, we are witnesses to Jesus, to his goodness, you know, to his love, to his grace, to his patience, to his mercy. You know, it's, it's what we are. It's who we are, right? It's what our lives are supposed to be, a witness, right? You know, when we lived in Hungary, I would ask the Lord, you know, why he didn't give me the Hungarian language. I mean, uh, truth be told, I speak better Hungarian today than I, than I speak when we lived there. I couldn't communicate at all when we lived there. Now I go to Hungary, I can talk to, to many people. You know, but when we lived there, I would just plead with the Lord, why? I mean, please, Lord, give me the language so I can talk to people without a translator. And, and you know what he told me? He said, Gary, I want people to see your life. I don't want them to hear your words. You know what? When it comes to witnessing our lives, our love, our actions, you know, they're going to speak louder than our words. And then in verse 9, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And we saw last time when we looked at this verse, Jesus was received into the cloud. And it was that same cloud that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness towards the promised land. It was the same cloud that filled the, the tabernacle and later the temple. It's the Shekinah, glory of God. It was the Kabod, right? And Jesus was received into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. I love that. And he's there waiting for his father's word saying, it's time. You know what? Go get your bride. Receive her to yourself. You know, Jesus is returning. He's coming again for us. 
You know, and again, that's something to be excited. Last time, if you remember, I said, Jesus is returning. And then I waited for an airy man. Amen. He's returning. Boy, it's something to be recited. You know, uh, I was thinking how many people tell me, you know, I just, I, just, I just can't watch the news. It just gets me so down. It just wrecks my day. That's because you're focusing on the circumstances. I watch the news. It gets me so excited because the Lord's soon return is evident when you watch the news. Anyway, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. One thing I always try to be uh, mindful of, you know, is where the Lord has us in the word and when he has us there. You know, up to this point now, you know, our study today has been basically introduction and review. But this is where our study of the book of Acts now really begins. And I find it interesting. Uh, and I think we're to understand that it's here, right here, we see the disciples are facing a new beginning in their lives. Right? It's a, it's a beginning of waiting on the Spirit, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, the power for the work of the ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with Jesus in faith, not by sight. You know, and in light of this, what do they do? Right? And in light of being faced with this new chapter in their life, what do they do? They get together and pray. They get together and they seek the Lord and they, they seek uh, him for the Holy Spirit to fill them, to be poured out upon them. They get together and they ask the Lord to baptize them in the Holy Spirit for the work of the ministry. Again, I find it interesting where the Lord has us in his word in light of where we are as a church. You know, and I believe uh, with all my heart, you know, uh, and, and, I, and I want you to know, I want you to believe me when I say this. Hey, you know what? I'm not looking ahead to try to manipulate teachings to kind of fit in with where, where we're at, what we're going through. You know, I'm not that clever, you know? Uh, but my point is this. I think the Lord wants us to be aware of what he's saying to us, right? What he would teach us and when he would teach it to us, right? I just want to encourage each of us to be watching and to be sensitive to what the Lord uh, is highlighting for us in the word as he, when he does it. You know, it's been my experience that he always has us in the word, studying the word, right at the right place, just at the right time. And we see here, as the disciples are faced with this new beginning, this new chapter in life, they're getting together to pray. And, and you know what? Maybe it's not convenient. You know, I talk about prayer Saturday nights all the time. Maybe it's not convenient for you to gather together on a Saturday night and pray. I get it. It's okay. There's no pressure. But I encourage you, every time you do pray, you know, ask the Lord to bless Calvary Chapel Truckee. Ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word. Ask the Lord to fill us with his spirit for the work of the ministry. Ask the Lord to use us to draw other people to him. Right? I believe with all my heart, the best days of Calvary Chapel Truckee are ahead of us. I believe it with all my heart. Let's pray and ask the God to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we could ask or think according to the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that works in us, right? And let's believe him to answer that prayer. Now, in verse 14, it says that they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So, uh, you know, I'd like to ask you, you know, uh, and I don't mean this to be, condemning in any way 
But what's your prayer life look like? What's your prayer life look like? Honestly, just between you and the Lord, what's your prayer life look like? Because prayer is a barometer of what we understand of God's grace. The more we understand of God's grace, the more we're going to engage in prayer. And prayer is such, I mean, like, I, I think people don't understand sometimes. Prayer is such an amazing blessing. It's a privilege in reality. And the more uh, that, you know, I mean, the more that we engage in prayer, you know, the more things actually will be accomplished through prayer than by any other agency. You know, someone once said, you can always do more after you pray, but you can't do much of any value before you pray. You know, I find it a little surprising. God has given us such a, a privilege in being able to come into his presence at any time, present our prayers and petitions and supplications to him. He's given us such a powerful weapon in prayer, spiritually speaking, and yet so many Christians live their lives defeated. And it's all because they fail to unsheath that weapon of prayer and use it. You know, I think the church as a whole, across the United States, I think the church as a whole needs to wake up and see that, you know what, we're in a battle, especially in these last days. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. And lives are hanging in the balance right here in our town. You know, the enemy is seeking to pull down ministries and wreak havoc in churches. You know, pastors, I, I tell you, pastors are under attack like never before. Marriages under siege like never before. Young people being ravaged by drugs and alcohol and, uh, you know, pornography. Uh, you know, the pull of the world on kids today is a hundred, a thousand times greater than it was when we were kids. Families, young families, uh, established families, just being destroyed today because the enemy is at work. I believe with all my heart that, you know, we're living in the last days and the enemy knows it. So what's he doing? He's pulling out all the stops. He's pulling out all the stops in order to still kill and destroy everything that's precious to the Lord. And lovingly, you know, I'd say to you, you know, we here, right here, we need to wake up. We need to wake up and we need to press in. You know, someone once said Christianity is a battleground. It's not a playground. You've heard him say that. It's true. You know, and I don't know how exactly a prayer works in heaven. I don't know. But I do know our prayers are a line of defense for those people that we love and know, family and friends. Right? And I believe the Lord is looking for people. He's looking for us to stand in the gap on behalf of people that are all around us in order that they won't be ripped off by the enemy. And the question is, are we going to answer that call? You know, I want to encourage you to be praying. It's my prayer that we would be a people that are given over to prayer. When we get together on Saturday nights to agree in prayer, you know what? We pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us to empower us. We pray for um, wisdom and vision and direction. You know, there's so much to pray about. We pray about marriages, constantly praying about marriages to be revived, to be restored. We pray for revival in general for the church. Pray for friends and family members to be saved. Pray for healings. We pray for struggles that are, people are going through. In my private time of prayer, I pray for everyone in the church uh, Almost daily by name, I pray for each and every person. You know, it's God's heart for his church to be praying and seeking him. You know, someone once said, and I think it's very accurate, um, anything creative, anything powerful, anything biblical, insofar, uh, you know, as we are participating in it, it, only, it all originates in prayer. And again, you know, I know it's not convenient for all of us to get together on a Saturday night to pray. And again, you know what? That's okay. I, I get it. But I would encourage you, if you are available, you know what? Come out and pray. 
I can't impress, impress upon people uh, enough how important prayer is and corporate prayer at that. And you might be thinking, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, Gary. I know how important prayer is. And to that, I would reply, you don't know. You don't know. None of us, none of us know the power that's available to us as we gather together and pray. The fellowship that we can engage in with the Father through prayer, we don't know. We don't know. But we can attempt to plumb those depths. You know, it's my prayer. Uh, it's my heart that each of us individually would have a burning desire to grow in this discipline. And, and prayer is a discipline. You know what? Uh, it takes effort to develop a powerful prayer life. But if we'll commit to prayer, I believe God will do the unthinkable in our midst. God will accomplish things we've never even dreamed of if we'll commit to prayer. You know what? We can't lose sight of the fact that prayer is a privilege. We can't lose sight of that. Well, they continued in prayer, one accord, one heart, one mind, agreeing with one another. Paul says in Philippians 2, 1 through 2, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You know, it's what we should endeavor to be. Like-minded. You know, of the same mind. Uh, the same love. One accord. That's what we should endeavor to be as a church. Well, we see the disciples and in, 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 uh, they're praying in the upper room there in verse 14. In verse 14, uh, 13 and verse 14, you see the women who follow Jesus are there along with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I just want to make a few observations here. Notice it's a mixed crowd. It's a mixed crowd. Both the apostles and ordinary people are praying together. Mary is present worshiping and praying in agreement with the others. She's among the believers. She's not running the meeting, right? She's blessed among all women, not above all women. No one's, you know, praying and worshiping her. No one's lighting a candle or anything like that. In fact, this is actually the last time we see Mary mentioned in the Bible, right? It's worth noting uh, the first always and the last, you know, the the last thing that Mary said, you might remember, those words are recorded. They're found in John 2, 5. Mary says, whatever he says, speaking of Jesus, whatever he says, do it. Personally, I think that's pretty good advice. You know, again, I, I think it's worth noting that we see Mary here with others worshiping the risen Savior. You know, the second thing we see here... Um, is that Jesus' brothers are present. And the reason that's worth noting uh, is because, you know, during Jesus' earthly ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. You know, the brothers are James and Jude. They're actually uh, Jesus' half-brothers. Well, what changed? What happened in their life? What caused them to become believers? It was the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, we don't have that slide uh, after Jesus' resurrection, he was seen by Cephas. Uh, it's talking, it's a reference to Peter. Then by the 12, then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And then he was seen by James, right? This James that's mentioned there is the half-brother of Jesus, who later went on to become the early uh, leader of the church. We see that in, in the book of Acts. It's the same James that wrote the book of James, and uh, he's also the brother, the full brother of Jude, who went on to write the book of Jude. It was the resurrection of Jesus that caused his unbelieving brothers to come to faith in him as their Messiah. You know, if anyone could question the deity of Jesus Christ, it would be his brothers. 
You know, I mean, how many of your brothers and sisters are saying, oh, yeah, you know what, my brother and sister, you know, Gary, you know, Lee, he's the Messiah. Oh, yeah, he's God. You know, nobody says that, right, about their relatives, right? And yet we see these guys now taking part in this group worshiping Jesus. You know, maybe you can think of a friend or a loved one that isn't a believer. Maybe your heart would say, there's no way. There's no way. It's going to take a miracle. Well, we see here that it's the power of the resurrection working on the unsaved uh, loved ones, right? It's the power of the resurrection that can work in the hard hearts of people uh, to know and love Jesus. You know, I mean... Uh, there was a time I thought, uh, in regards to my dad, there's no way. There's no way. My dad's never going to get saved. You know, and, and honestly, I had all but given up. And, uh, you know, I got to pray with my dad to receive the Lord before he died. And it was a, a great blessing. It was a miracle, actually. And the Lord, after I did my dad's funeral, the Lord spoke to me. I can remember I'm walking out of the chapel, and the Lord speaks to me so very clearly. And he says, you know, Gary, all those prayers that you prayed for your dad, they weren't wasted. I heard every one of them. And man, what a glorious thing to understand that. We can't lose heart praying for friends and families. We got to stand in the gap for unsaved loved ones. Because if we lose heart and we stop praying, who's going to pray for him? Nobody. Verse 15 and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, these scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who, uh, sorry, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. People often wonder if Peter was being led by the Spirit here, putting forth these two men as a replacement for Judas? Or was he, in, was he in error? Was he acting in the flesh? You know, honestly, uh, I'm not entirely sure. What I do know is Peter is knowledgeable about the word. Verse 16, he says that he knows that the scriptures has to be fulfilled. God's word is sure it's going to come to pass, just like the Lord said it will. And then what he does is he quotes two, you know, I don't know, pretty obscure verses from the Psalms, and he applies them to Judas, right? Peter's a fisherman. Where did he get this understanding and knowledge of God's word? You know, I think it came about because he spent time with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off on Peter, right? After Peter and John were used to heal uh, the lame man, they were brought before the priests, and the Sadducees, because they ascribed that healing to the resurrected Jesus. And with great boldness, Peter preached Christ to Annas, the high priest at the time, and to Caiaphas, the very guys that had Christ crucified, right? And we read in Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled, and then they realized, well, that they'd been with Jesus. You know what? Peter and boy, the boys spent time with Jesus. And that's the key for you and me. That's the key. You know, do you want to be used more? You want to you uh, know more of God's word? Do you want to know it better? Do you want to uh, understand it more? The answer then is just to spend time with Jesus. That's how simple it is. Spend time with the Lord. Sit at his feet. Drink him in. Remember what Jesus said to Mary? He said that she'd chosen the better part. Spending time with God blesses him more than our service for God. God's more interested in the minister than he is the ministry. We got to understand that. Spending time with the Lord will be evident in our lives because it will just naturally spill over into our service. And verse 17 says, for he was numbered with us and obtained part in the ministry. So how sad it is for a person to be in the presence of the Lord and still reject him. Usually it's because of selfishness. 
there's some sin that they don't want to surrender. They're unwilling to give it up in order to be saved. And in verse 18, it says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and fell headlong. He burst open in the middle of all his, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, filled of blood. You know, it's right here that people are often quick to cry out, contradiction! And you know what they'll do is they'll, They'll point you to Matthew 27, 5 that says um, Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas was hung. And, and here in Acts, it says that he fell headlong and his entrails gushed out. You know, it's obviously a contradiction, they'll say. Is it? No, it's not. It's not a contradiction. It's more information, right? Judas went out and hung himself. And at some point before Maybe after he died, you know, the rope or the limb of the tree uh, broke and he fell, hit the ground, and he was disemboweled. His fall occurred in what became known as the field of blood. So the question remains, is Peter being led by the Holy Spirit here or not? Is Matthias to be the 12th apostle or is it Paul? Uh, lots of people want to an, uh, answer to that question. If you believe that Peter is being led by the Holy Spirit here, then this is your argument. In Acts chapter 13, Jesus spoke to the disciples. Uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus spoke to the disciples the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And those that hold to this view that Peter is being led by the Spirit, you know, uh, believe that those things that Jesus spoke to them included choosing another apostle. And in Acts 2.14, if you glance over there, turn the page, uh, if you glance over there very quickly, you see that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes Matthias as part of the 11. And we see, and we have a slide for this one, 1 Corinthians 15.5, and we see that Paul doesn't include himself among the 12 apostles. You don't have that slide? Okay, sorry. What it says is, is Paul writes that Jesus, after his resurrection, was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, right? Paul uh, doesn't say, you know, uh, that, well, he was seen by me and the other 11, right? So if you believe that Paul was the replacement, though, for Judas and Peter is acting in the flesh here, then here's your argument. Romans 1.1, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. And if you look closely, the, the words to be are in italics. So that means it's inserted by the publisher. It's not actually there in the original Greek, you know. So it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle separated to the gospel of God. The same is true in 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. In 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Galatians 1.1, 1, 1, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul calls himself an apostle. Look at verse 22, Acts 1.22. Here, Peter lays out the qualification of an apostle. Beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul also said, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostle. He went on to say, for in nothing was I behind the most, uh, uh, for in nothing I was not behind the most uh, eminent apostle, though I am nothing. In a very interesting, Jude 17, 18. Jude writes, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last days who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. The question is, who said these things? The answer is, Paul said them. Paul said them in Acts 20, 29, 2 Timothy 3, 
1 through 5 and verse uh, chapter 4 through 3, if you're taking notes. So what's going on here is Jude, he sees Paul as an apostle equal to Peter. You would also argue that the miracles that God did through Peter or through Paul are the same miracles that God did through Peter, thereby authenticating uh, Paul's apostleship. For instance, Paul heals a lame man, Acts chapter 3. Well, uh, sorry, Peter heals a lame man, Acts chapter 3. Paul heals a lame man, Acts chapter 14. Peter lays hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 8. Paul lays hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 19. Peter raises Dorcas from the dead, Acts chapter 9. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead, Acts chapter 20. Peter is released from prison miraculously, uh, Acts chapter 12. Paul is miraculously re released from Peter, uh, a prison, sorry, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 5 seems to indicate that when Peter's shadow fell on sick people, they were miraculously healed. Acts chapter 19 tells us that Paul's handkerchiefs and apron, when they were brought from his body to the sick, the diseases left them, the evil spirits uh, went out of the people. Some would go as far as to say that Paul was a replacement of Judas because you never hear of Matthias again. All right? But you want to be careful because you don't hear about Thomas anymore. You don't hear about Andrew anymore. You don't hear about Philip or Bartholomew or any of the others anymore. So that's not a very strong argument. All of that to say this. I don't think it's important. I don't think it's important. You know what? We will all one day know when we're walking the streets of New Jerusalem because we'll see the names of the apostles written on the foundation. Right? We'll see the 12 apostles sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 nations. It's not important. And the reason I think it's not important is because God's not a respecter of person. You know what? Your prayers, my prayers are heard by God just as quickly as anybody else's prayer. You know, everyone puts their pants on the same way, one leg at a time, right? So I don't think it's important. Um, I do think it's important to notice how Peter chooses uh, the replacement. He casts lots. And hey, why not cast lots? After all, Proverbs says that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Jonah knew all about casting lots, right? He was thrown into the sea because the lot fell on him. You know, uh, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel was divided and handed out to each tribe by lot. So it seems, you know, that's the way to go, right? I don't think so. Because casting lots is an Old Testament practice. This is uh, the very last time. We never see it in the New Testament. This is the only time, right? The Old Testament times, if you had a question uh, you'd go to the priest in Jerusalem. You'd ask the question. You'd say a prayer. The priest would reach into his breastplate. He would grab, you know, uh, the Urim and Thummim. You know, we don't know exactly what it is. We, it's thought that it was a white stone and a black stone. You know, if he pulled out the black stone, it meant no, or you need to wait. If he pulled out the white stone, it meant yes, or, or uh, yeah, go headlong, go for it. But now... We have the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us, right? We're to pray. We're to wait on the Spirit to show us how and when to move forward. It, it's wrong and dangerous, I believe, to lay out fleeces to the Lord today. Why? Well, because it's our nature to manipulate it, to question the results of the fleece. You know what? I like donuts, right? So, you know, on my way to work, I say, Lord, if you want me to have a donut today, regardless of what Tina may say, let there be a parking spot right in front of the donut shop. And then I drive around the block 20 times looking for a parking spot to open up. And then it opens up and I'm like, hey, it's the Lord, Tina. I can't be blamed, right? You know, we see that. That's what Gideon did. Judges chapter six, he lays out a fleece. He says, I'm gonna lay out this fleece. Then Lord, you know what? In the morning, if the, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then okay, I know that it's you that's speaking to me to do this, right? So what happened? He wakes up, he sees the fleece is wet, the ground's dry, and he questions it, you know? 
he says, hey, maybe that's just what happens naturally. Maybe there's just some strange meteorological event that occurs in this area that this just happens. So, you know, maybe it's not God after all. So what does he do? He lays out another fleece, another hoop for the Lord to jump through. And he says, okay, this time make the fleece dry and the ground wet. You know what? We're not to put God to the test like that. Peter says, verse 23, Joseph called uh, Barsabas, whose surname is Justice, and Matthias, he puts them forth and he says, which one, Lord? A or B? Which one? Pick. Go ahead, pick, Lord. Which one? You know, and that's what we do so often. We lay out these fleeces. Which one, Lord? A or B? This or that? Him or her? Which one? Tell me, Lord. What's it going to be? Pick. Just go ahead and pick, Lord. I'll be obedient to whichever one you pick. You know? Who's the next apostle? I think it's interesting to note in the Bible what we see is God gave us one apostle. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. God gives us one apostle. But in Matthew 10, we read that Jesus, he chooses 12 apostles. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we see the Holy Spirit chooses many apostles. The word apostle simply means sent one. And as we've learned the Great Commission, it goes out to all of us. As you, as we go through the world, walk through this world, we're to preach the gospel to every creature, uh, making disciples of all the nations. We're all called to that, right? We're the sent ones. Not in the same sense as the original, but we're all sent nonetheless. You know, I think the, the point is this. Peter offered God, offers God two choices. We often offer God two choices, right? And God may want to do something we haven't yet considered. You know, that's why prayer and waiting on the Spirit is so important, right? God has resources that we haven't even considered, that we can't even begin to imagine. You know, in our mind, you know, we lay it out, God, what do you want to do? A, B. Just tell me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Which, just tell me. Lord. Pick one. Right? But it's been my experience. What God really wants to do is not only maybe A and B. Maybe he doesn't want to do A and B at all. Maybe he wants to do C, D, E, F. Everything to Z. Right? We need to remember God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know? He's predictably unpredictable. That's what I've, I've learned in my walk with the Lord. So let me just leave you with this challenge. We're going we're gonna, to uh, end right here. Let me just leave you with this challenge. You know, I, I would encourage, it's my prayer, that each of us would purpose in our hearts today to be men and women of prayer, to seek his heart, right? Not to, not to grow weary in well-doing, to wait on him, to seek his heart, to surrender to his leading, to his timing, to his planning, right? To, to just seek to just sit in his presence and enjoy him, right? Worshiping him, rejoicing in him, drinking him in. No matter what we face in our day, no matter what's ahead of us tomorrow, just commit that, you know what? I'm going to follow the Lord. Regardless, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to pray. You know, let's not limit him by our short-sightedness. That's what I do too often. I just limit the Lord because I'm so short-sighted. You know, and let's resolve to let him do all that is in his heart for each of us individually, for our marriages, for our families, for our kids, for our church. Let's pray together and wait on him for the miraculous. Amen? Yeah, go ahead and come on up and, and we'll uh, pray. Lord, I do just, Lord, I want to grow in you. I want to grow in this discipline of prayer. I want to learn to hear your voice, Lord. I want that for, for all of us as a church. Lord, just to be able to, to learn the value of sitting at your feet, committing meaningful time in our day, Lord, turning off the television, picking up the Bible, 
reading it, making a commitment to read it through in a year, to read it through in nine months, six months, whatever it may be. Read through the New Testament in the next two months before the end of, the, before the, uh, end of December, Lord. Help us, Lord. Just seek to seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Fall deeper in love with you. Again, as individuals and as a church, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.